But this time I'd turn your attention to Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 to get us started. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Last week, I opened the door of Galatians 5 under the banner of application. This is the section that Paul turns, it's the pivot point where he's turning to apply the gospel and all that he's said up to this point to living the Christian life, living the spirit-filled, spirit-led life. Galatians 5 is an important chapter in regards to inward motivations by the Holy Spirit rather than being led by outward motivations of legalism. It's a fine line between the two and wherever you assess yourself and however you diagnose how you're being led is important in regards to Galatians chapters 5 and I would say chapter 6. There's really only two religions in the world. There are a variety of charade religions that are promising hope, promising heaven, promising a path of peace in this life and the life to come that are all works-based. Just fill in the blank with any cult, any form of Christian fakery, any preacher on TV or radio that will say, yes, Jesus is the way to heaven, but who am I to judge the other religions that claim that you can also get to heaven their way, even in the name of a pseudo-Christian gospel? That kind of inclusivism is damnable, is wrong. I would dare say you should discern whether or not you should ever listen to preachers who promote that kind of fakery, that kind of trickery. At least guard your children in terms of the intake of welcoming that kind of false teaching into your hearing, that kind of pluralism that is anti-gospel, anti-narrow road. There's only one way to heaven, only one way. There's only one road that leads you to Christ and to heaven. And there are many, many false roads that are the wide road, that are off-ramps, that are slippery paths that will descend you down into hell. So there's two religions. One is the true gospel of saving grace through Christ alone, and then there are all the other fakeries that you could banner under the gospel of self-achievement or gospel of works. Anytime people are mixing grace and works, grace and this sort of self-actualization, this self-achievement, 
the gospel of human accomplishment, that is no gospel at all. And deep down, people's pride will be hooked into a gospel of works. They want to save themselves, and we cannot save ourselves. We are drowning in a sea of sin. We are spiraling down into hell unless God, through the gospel of saving grace, reaches down and brings you up to be his. That's Paul's point, and that's what he's guarding these churches in Galatia against. He's guarding them against false teaching. The gospel of 99% Jesus Christ and 1% works is no gospel at all. It's an admixture like oil and water. It's putting one foot in the world of works and one foot in the world of grace. And the church has been errantly underselling the radical nature of grace. How big is grace? Grace changes everything, as churches have said recently, to combat um, underselling grace. Grace is free. I shouldn't say the word selling. It's free. It's a gift. It is what God alone gives you. It's either all by grace that we are saved, and that's God's gospel, or we have no gospel at all. Churches have been afraid to and tentative to promote a gospel that is completely free and freeing. They say that if you give a completely free gospel and free grace-driven Christian life, if you preach that, that that will remove the incentive for people to live a holy life. People are afraid to say, be free in the gospel. But look at verse 1 of chapter 5. What is the motivation for the gospel? It is simply this, for freedom Christ has set you free. For freedom Christ has set you free. And the way I've framed this study for these verses is to say, what is lost if you mix up the gospel? What is lost if you make an admixture between works and grace? And then we'll finish this morning with what is gained when you truly live by the gospel of free, saving grace. What's lost and what's gained? Understanding these gains and these losses is how you can train your heart to be stayed on grace. Legalism will put you in a place where you are depending on the flesh and you lose certain things. You, you lose certain realities spiritually if your heart is in that posture versus a posture of saying, I cannot save myself. I did not save myself. I'm saved by grace through faith alone. And I am free. I am unfettered. I am unshackled. I am not in a performance good outweighing the bad false gospel mindset. I am free from that. I am relying in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. As I mentioned last week, it's a defect in our belief when we do not preach the gratuitous, cost-free, nourishing gospel. So we're ridding ourselves of outer motivations, and we are regrasping the inner motivations of the Holy Spirit. So again, by way of review, what's lost when you're trusting in outward motivations, you lose your freedom. Verse 1, we are to stand firm. We are to combat losing our freedom. We're to not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We, did, we weren't saved out of one cell of sin to walk down the prisoner's hallway and recheck in to another cell and say, now put this yoke of bondage in my life. We were incarcerated and freed not to be back into prison. 
So this motivation for freedom should be something we guard. We guard against. We're, we're measuring what could be lost in the joy of the Holy Spirit if we begin to live under the spell of legalism. Point two, what else is lost? Christ's grace is lost. It's lost for the believer in this way. As a believer, you are saved by grace and nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You are sealed for the day of redemption. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have an inheritance that's unshakable, cannot be taken from you. No no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. You are saved. And we understand that. But as a believer, even as an adopted child of God, as Paul called these believers, they are adopted. They cry, Abba, Father, to, to by the Holy Spirit, to God. Even those believers are threatened by beginning to live under a bewitching spell where the air hose of their spiritual life is being crimped and they're being hurt spiritually. We're called to grow by grace so we can lose the power of God in our lives if we start trusting our own flesh. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... If you go down this law-abiding or law-keeping path, Christ will be of no advantage to you. (coughs) For the unbeliever, it's highly dangerous, highly dangerous putting souls in jeopardy where an unbeliever is in a far worse category, trusting in legalism at the beginning of his journey or her journey. If you trust in legalism and you're trusting in a false gospel, then you really don't have Christ. And that means you don't have Christ's advantage of saving grace. And so for a person who is duped, he could look at a verse like this and say, I have forfeited grace in my life, grace that I never had in the first place. It's when people make works necessary for salvation and you know different religions you know different religions that will for in the name of christian growth say for you to be saved and stay saved you better perform these works and they mix the gospel and they give a a a blessing or a curse in terms of whether you get to stay in or out of the faith and you know what i'm talking about and that is very very dangerous and it is damning Christ can become no advantage to you. That's exactly what was going on in the Jerusalem Council way back in the book of Acts, right at the beginning of the church where the Judaizers were showing up and saying, it is necessary, it is necessary for you to keep the law of God. It's necessary to be circumcised and to order them to keep the whole law of God. That word necessary is so dangerous. When people were accepting circumcision, it would be like in the end times being tested as to whether you would take the mark of the beast. Those who take the mark of the beast are are rejecting the gospel of saving grace. So don't do that. Trust in Christ and Christ alone. And if faced with that decision, do not be named among those who are not conquerors, those who are not real Christians at all. God has to be the ruler over everything in our lives. He is the Lord of our lives. We are not the Lord over our own destinies. Well, thirdly, you can lose your spirit. What I mean by that is your lowercase s spirit. You can lose your joy. You can lose your motivations in the Christian life. You lose your heart. Verse 3, Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. This is the idea of 
Paul's saying you cannot be a cafeteria Christian. You cannot pick and choose what you believe you're supposed to law keep or not. You can't take part of the servings and leave part in terms of works. Oh, well, I just do these works and these works make me feel better about my spiritual life. And as long as I'm on that performance treadmill with these works, then I'm okay. But I'm not worried about the other part of the law. Well, Paul does not bifurcate the law. He doesn't trifurcate the law. The law is the law in total. So you are either under all of the law or you are not under the law. We're going to explain what that looks like in terms of New Testament applications where part of the moral law is repeated and how we obey the law of Christ. But if you're putting yourself under an old covenant system to save you in any regard at all, it will burden you. You will not be the first John 5, 3, those who keep his commandments. And his commandments aren't burdensome. You're not heavy laden. You are free. You are resting in Christ. Christ who said in Matthew 11, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable to it all. And this is what Galatians 3.10 called a curse. You Christians need to be free. Amen? I need to be free. We need to drink deeply of the gospel and take it for what it truly is. Fourthly, you will lose the assurance of your salvation if you are trying to earn your way to heaven. You lose the assurance of your salvation. And this is very, very sad, but uh, it is a reality in the Christian life. Many who begin to try to have their good outweigh the bad, bad will lose confidence, will have a bruised conscience, will have a hurt heart, and they'll say, how could I do something like that and still be a Christian? That kind of thinking is typically related to not trusting in a 100% grace-given gospel. Galatians 5 verse 4, you, have, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. We're not justified by the law. We're not supposed to be just, made right by the law. We are justified by saving grace alone. But if you're on the entry point saying, I'm going to be justified even a little bit by the law, I'm going to be saved by doing something, then you're severed from Christ. You can't have it both ways. You don't have Jesus if that's the path you've taken. That's Paul's clear point and warning. For believers, we're severed from the power of God. We're severed from from being in fellowship with God if we're trying to have some kind of functional grace where we're trying to keep ourselves right with God. But for the unbeliever, where legalism really is the root system of your religion, You are severed from Christ. You do not have Christ. And you are in danger of hellfire. And you are in danger of coming to a place where you are at the point of no return. Where you've been exposed to Christ so much externally that your heart is hardened and comfortably set in legalism. You never want to get to that point even in this life. And Hebrews 6 warns against that. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I won't read this quote again, but he said, a verse like four, verse four is like being told, your house is on fire and you need to do something about that. 
Reminds me of the time I was uh, serving my kid oatmeal and I was boiling water at the same time and I had an untucked look, which I don't always wear an untucked look. I don't even look cool in an untucked look, but the untucked portion of my shirt hit the burner and suddenly I was on fire. And Judy's in the kitchen. I'll turn around. I said, Judy, I'm on fire. And she goes, oh, whatever. Come on. You're on fire. No, no, I really am on fire. And so we together stamped it out. We need to take these things uh, seriously and all humor aside and understand that hell is real, hell is eternal, and hell is something to be avoided at all costs, like in this life where we would want to avoid cancer. There are people with cancer who don't know they have cancer, and there are people who know they have cancer, and there's people who do not have cancer. And oftentimes, people go asymptomatic even when they have terminal cancer. So if There is spiritual cancer in your life. You need to know about it and you need to deal with it with severity. Now we come to point two in my outline. What's gained when trusting inward motivations? This is a timely pivot point in our section. What is gained? What do you have to gain by living by the power of the Holy Spirit? Number one, you have hope. You gain hope. People need hope. You need hope in this life. And you need hope in the life to come. Hope in this life, at least in terms of the way the English vernacular defines hope, is far weaker than the hope that we find in Scripture. Look at verse 5. For through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Hope, that word elpis or elpida, is a word in the original language that is talking not in terms of English hope, like, hey, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow when things warm up. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. My weather app says that it will, so I hope that it won't, or I hope that it will. That's our English version of hope. Biblically speaking, the word hope is a rock-solid, spirit-emblazoned, divinely imprinted conviction that this is going to happen and I can taste it now, even though I can't see it. That's where Paul calls Christians to be, to combat legalism. You want to combat legalism? Enter into this kind of hope. This kind of resting posture. Resting posture. It's the difference between being in a pool where you are just slogging it away and you're, you're going for it and you're killing it. You're going as fast as you can. And then you stop and then you go into a resting posture where your heart rate can slow down and you can breathe easy. It's the resting posture of hope. Where you understand that heaven is real, that death does not hold me, that my sin, though it plagues me, though it hurts me, though it bruises my conscience, it will ultimately be dealt with one day, completely. It's been dealt with positionally in Christ. I'm set in Christ. I, as Romans chapter 5 says, stand in grace, in this grace in which we stand, and yet... 
one day as we see Christ face to face, our sin will be completely removed from our experience. And we know this by hope. This is hope that is spirit-wrought and postural. You are either resting sometimes or most of the time resting in Christ, or you are resting all of the time in the assurances of Christ. And you know which category you fall into, a partial rester or full-time rester. Are you someone who is resting your whole heart in Christ, or are you thrusting back and forth in life through travail and work and worry? That's the question. Resting is the essence of the Christian life. If you were to take time and look through Hebrews chapter 4 and the Old Testament picture of how Israel was working its way 40 years through the desert and they were looking to a promised land. They were looking to a place where they would find their rest. That's a picture of heaven and a picture of our Christian pilgrimage therein. Resting in heaven. Though we haven't seen heaven, we see it through the eyes of faith. We believe in heaven. It's our promised land. It's a difference between a busy, postured life and a posture where you've worked a job and it's a job well done and now you're resting. Spurgeon picked up on it this way. He said, as a workman, when he works six days and his work is over, he goes up to the master's pay table and waits for his wage. We believe that the meritorious work by which heaven is procured for us is all done. Therefore, we are waiting in the name of Jesus to take the reward that as a matter of justice is due Christ and has been by Christ's dying testament transferred to us. It's two different postures. You can have this busy posture that you're still working. You're still trying to get your way to heaven. You're still trying to get paid. And Spurgeon's picture is the idea of a person who's not working. He's not working at all. He's just waiting. He's waiting to be paid. It's not a paid that we worked for. Christ did all the work in his life and in his death. We know that. That's the gospel. It's what he did. But we're waiting to be paid on behalf of what he did at the workman's table. We eagerly wait for this it's an eagerness if you look at verse 5 it's something that we're anticipating it's something that we're convinced of first second timothy 1:12 paul to timothy he was from prison trying to tell timothy listen i'm in chains second timothy he's going to die from that cell to the chopping block and he's telling timothy these words second timothy 1:12 This is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. As I said before, believers, you are made righteous. In the past tense, you are positionally righteous. God the Father sees your standing through the shed blood of Christ. His righteousness has been applied to you 
And your account that was in a sin deficit is in a 100% positive, and it is Christ. Romans 5, 1 and 2, this grace in which we stand. And though we are justified in positional righteousness, we still at the same time are aware of the sin that is ever Before us. So, how do we deal with this pain of sin in our lives? You have a choice. Your choice is either either to try to scrub it off with your own works or trust in Christ who has saved you and will ultimately eradicate your sin when you are glorified. One day, we will see him face to face. We will see him just as he is. 1 John chapter 3. Having this hope. 1 John 3, verse 3, purifies us. You are either trying to scrub off the mud of your sin, and if you've ever done that, where it has the gristly grit and rocks in there, and you're trying to you know, work it off, and you put water on it, and it just gets gooier and bigger, and it's a bigger mess. Add Alaskan glacial silt to that. I mean, you know, you're trying to work your sin off with your good outweighing the bad or what you're doing. And instead of these things... You say, no, that's not how I came to know Christ. I was drowning, and Christ reached me up out of the water. It's a picture of where Peter was walking on the water, and he trusted himself and stopped looking to Jesus, but Jesus is the one who saves us, who lifts us into his boat of salvation. And we not only know that for our saving Position, but we need to know that in our Christian experience. You need to live that gospel that it's by grace alone. That's the posture of anticipation. That's eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. I was thinking of Jesus as he rebuked his disciples in Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 4. He says, could you not watch with me for an hour? That's so convicting to me because I would have been just conked out. I'm the person who just drops, goes to sleep, right? I mean, this is on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. This is the capstone of three years of Christ's teaching. And he's seeing his disciples fall away in the flesh, not being alert, not being watchful, not being those that are waiting with anticipation for redemption. Don't fall asleep. Be eager, be alert. Be sober in spirit. Understand that Christ is our hope. And when you do this, Isaiah 40, 31. But they that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings as eagles, right? That's where you fly in the Christian life. Romans 8, where in Romans he's talking about the creation that's groaning for its redemption, right? It's a sin-cursed, Genesis 3, sin-cursed world. Well, we too experience that, verse 23. Listen to how many times the word hope is interlaced in Paul's writings here. Romans 8, 23 through 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, there's the first one, We were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Does that all sound familiar? Same author, 
Same message. So that's one thing that's gained when you live the spirit-filled life and inwardly motivated spiritual life. What else is gained? Your heart. And I want to replace a word in your outline with for the word heart and insert the word love. Love. I think that's a better word for what Paul is conveying here. Our hearts grow cold. Our hearts grow faint and weary and weak. We lose our freedom. We lose our grace. We lose the power of God on our lives. We lose our spirit. We lose our identity. We lose our assurance by trying to scrub sin off through self-achievement. But when you trust in grace alone and you know that it was Jesus who saved you and you know that you were a sin-sick, shriveled-up, hopeless, drowning soul that Christ redeemed, guess what happens? That translates into loving other people, loving God and loving other people. Your heart gets loving again. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. What do you gain? Well, the opposite of legalism is losing freedom, losing grace, losing your spirit, losing assurance. But the spirit-led inward motivation gives you your heart back, your heart for people back. And you know what I'm talking about. When you are cold, you begin to become distant to others. When you have no capacity, no Nothing in the tank to give to other people. It's easy to withdraw from people. But when your heart is filled with hope and your heart is filled with the Holy Spirit, then the love of Christ is shed abroad in your heart. Paul, in essence, in verse 6, is asking almost a rhetorical question where he says, For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What he's doing here is he's actually trying to push the reader to think about the final day of judgment in Christ. One day when you stand before Christ, whether you are circumcised or not, means nothing. It doesn't count for anything. Paul was circumcised. He basically repudiates that in Philippians chapter 3. He circumcised Timothy or had him circumcised so he would not be an offense to the Jews. But as soon as circumcision becomes a work or something that is required as a requirement to be saved or stay saved, then it is a false gospel. And he's saying this is immaterial. This whole operation does not matter. It doesn't count. It doesn't count for anything in Christ. As one person put it, we should be thinking in terms of our Christian lives like this, he said, what ultimately counts in this life is what ultimately matters in the day of judgment, in the day when we will see Christ face to face, the hope of righteousness. In light of that moment, circumcision or uncircumcision, any works, any clubs that you joined, any badges that you wear or that you wore, any good thing that you did in front of somebody else that made you feel good about yourself, all that is melting away. That doesn't make it to the judgment seat of Christ. 
British historian Paul Johnson, he wrote of Winston Churchill, Churchill had an uncanny gift for getting priorities right. This is our priority, and that is the free grace of Christ alone to save. So ultimately, circumcision doesn't mean anything when compared to faith working through love. What matters is that you have genuine faith. That is a faith that translates into love. It's not okay just to believe things or believe creeds or believe doctrinal statements. That's not okay. For your faith to be measured and affirmed as alive means that your faith produces love. Your heart melts for other people in words, actions, and attitudes. So how do you know if you have saving faith? If you go to the book of James, and I would invite you to turn there, James chapter 2 is one of the most potent clarifying exhortations in scripture in terms of making that analysis. Where am I spiritually? James 2 is basically saying, let's test your profession and see if it's alive. That's what the whole book of James is doing. It's asking, do you have living faith? Verse 14 of James 2. What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith and not works? Can that faith save him? Here's love in action. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is, let's say it together, dead. We are saved by faith alone, but our faith is not an alone faith. Do you hear that? We're saved by faith alone. Nothing that you add to your faith is saving. That actually is damning. However, your faith, when it is alive, does. And part of the doing is love. Is love. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Listen to verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You either have saving, spirit-wrought, illuminated, Christ-exalting, Christ-loving, affection-filled faith, or you have a demon faith, a devil's faith, a faith that kills, a faith that damns, a faith that sends you to hell. You have a faith filled with head knowledge where you believe a bunch of things and you believe you're safe because you believe a bunch of things and yet your heart is hardened and it does nothing in your life. It produces no love in your life. There's not Galatians 5, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is, say it, Love, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, and self-control. Love is the first one of those. The Holy Spirit in your life enlivens you so that you're not filled with a false hope that a demon has where they know a lot about Christ. They know enough to fear Christ. They know enough to shudder in the presence of Christ, but they don't know Christ as an adopted child of God. What does this kind of faith do? It loves, and it answers the question that we began with two weeks ago and this morning. 
Why can't the church just preach a free saving grace gospel, a gospel for freedom's sake, Galatians 5.1? What's the point of the gospel? So you'd be free. Why can't we do that? Are we so afraid and so tentative to release people to live the Christian life by the inward persuasions and motivations of the Holy Spirit? Are we so afraid to do that? Well, I think we are because we are misdefining how powerful true saving faith is. When you truly believe, you will love. And if you're loving other people, you are not going to sin against people. And you are going to obey the law of Christ. Faith and love go hand in hand. When people have genuine saving faith, you want them to do whatever they want to do. Let's say it that radically. Because you're trusting the Holy Spirit in their lives to work in their lives. And when they fall down, the Holy Spirit will use the body of Christ and will use accountability and will use their own inner working to their own conscience to ask forgiveness and to make things right. Galatians 5.14, we'll get there soon, but it says the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Assumption there from Matthew 22 where Christ confronted the lawyer, Matthew 22, 34 through 40, is that fulfilling the whole law comes from loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's a reflection of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema passage fulfilled in the gospel. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor in the way that you automatically love yourself. I would venture to say that we loved ourselves some this morning by waking up, making ourselves a good stiff cup of joe. I did that. I fed myself. I took care of myself. I clothed myself. Made sure I was warm enough. We take care of ourselves automatically. And when you are loving people by faith, you're going to take care of their needs automatically, effortlessly. There's an effortlessness to the gospel. There's an automatic nature to Christian living. I know I've been very Spurgeon heavy lately, but here we go again. I don't think we have this for the screen, but you can always find it because we post these online. Faith is like a metal worker who is about to prepare some work of fine art, such as smiths used to produce in the days of wrought iron. Faith, like a strong and vigorous smith, has love as its arm. Faith does not lift a finger without love. More than this, love is not only faith's arm, but it's its tools. Love is faith's hammer, file, and anvil. It's every implement. You've seen a wrench that can be made to fit every nut and bolt, however large or small. Love is just such a tool, for love will teach a little child or evangelize a nation. Love can stand and burn at the stake. Or it can drop two coins in the offering box. Wouldn't it be great to mentor someone and say, I believe you love Christ enough for you to be free. For you to live your life. For you to make choices. How freeing is that? The danger comes when we become so curriculum-based in our discipleship that we're trying to control people. Christian discipleship, just like evangelism, should be freeing 
very freeing, and watching people grow. When you have spirit-led love, you actually desire people to live any way they want to. In this way, you get the best out of people. It's an effortlessness to this. Listen to this by Martin Luther. It's very important and a pleasant comfort with which we bring wonderful encouragement to minds afflicted and disturbed with the sense of sin and fear of every flaming dart of the devil. Your righteousness, and I want you to listen to this, your righteousness is not visible and it is not conscious, but it is hoped for as something revealed in due time. Therefore, you must not judge on the basis of your consciousness of sin. How many of you are doing that? Judging your own spiritual life based on your own evaluation of your own consciousness of your sin. Let me give you some hope by giving you a word of discouragement. We are far worse than we actually think that we really are. If we're the evaluator... Instead of God, we're going to give ourselves a lot more latitude than he has or does. And yet, God loves you so much more than you love yourself. You become terrified and troubled by this. But on the basis of promise and the teachings of faith, we find promises in Christ as our perfect and eternal righteousness. In light of the uh, Master's Seminary Extension and, you know, MacArthur's going to be coming. Uh, by the way, he's going to be giving a, a Q&A. So hopefully we'll be able to raise our hand and interact with the big head on the screen. And, and we're also going to have a 20-minute exhortation from John. So it should be quite a night, quite an event to hear preaching. And he got his concluding illustration um, from somewhere. And I'm just going to use it and quote it directly because I can't do better than what he did here, but I think it's very powerful. Listen to this conclusion. There was an artist a long time ago. He had a dream of all of his whole life to sculpt a masterpiece, a masterpiece of multiple characters. And he finally received a commission from a great donor to do a work that was to be placed in a great museum and would bring him honor and fame. So he began to work, and he worked from the early years of his life until the end of his life. Year after year after year, he toiled at his masterpiece, and it was mammoth. He finished it, and he was all ready to win the acclaim of the world. And they found there was no way to get it out of the room that he had built it in. And nobody was willing to pay the price that it would have taken for him to work this out, to destroy a huge building in which he had worked. Everything he'd done was captive to this room as a prisoner, the room in which he had done it. As you read this, this is a picture of a man trying to earn his way into heaven. Everything he's done in this world in terms of merit or acclaim from God is lost. He's going to leave it in the room of this earth. And it will never be before God. There'll never be any acclaim, whatever you do by way of works. It will all perish with this earth. Salvation is by grace alone. 
grace alone. Throw yourself into the ocean of grace alone and rest there together.